0: Welcome to Mental Health Uncovered, a show dedicated to having candid everyday conversations about mental health. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I want to welcome everyone back to Mental Health Uncovered. This is your host, Seth Showalter, and today I'm going to be interviewing Nicolette Smith. I'm really excited to interview her as her story has been shared in recovery circles she helps facilitate a recovery ministry at her church and um, is super involved in aa as well as na recently she got certified as a genesis process counselor she's a survivor of an abusive relationship and she's currently deconstructing her own christian theology that helped get her into that situation So she's working on trying to learn more about being an advocate for women who have similar stories, and we are thrilled to have her on Mental Health Uncovered. So to get started, Nicolette, I am just so happy to have you here. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you. I'm doing really good today and excited to get to share a little bit of my journey with you.
0: Well, we are thrilled
1: did you have any questions mm-hmm. for me, or should I just start with sharing my story?
0: Well, I'd love to hear your story, so let's go ahead and get started.
1: Okay, so I my story is I kind of grew up, my childhood was pretty rocky. I grew up in a family with an, an alcoholic, emotionally unavailable mom. My mother was in a car accident before I was born and went through the windshield of a car, and she spent six months in a coma. And so she did come out of that and she learned how to walk and talk and all of that stuff, had to relearn everything. And that happened when she was 16 years old. And then after that, she met my dad and they got married. And so I kind of had this thing growing up where my mom, I don't know how capable she was or not of any sort of emotional connection if she had gotten help, but she never Mm -hmm. wanted to get any help. And so she was very emotionally abusive towards me. And I was the scapegoat child. Right. And so
0: when you say emotionally, when you say emotionally abusive, what does that look like? So you're saying scapegoat. So let's unpack that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I was the female child and I had a younger brother and I think my mom Sort of would look for ways to unload her anger on me. She didn't she didn't know how to deal with anything with any other emotion other than anger. And so mm-hmm. it was really frustrating for me as a child because any time that I did anything, she would just unload on me. There was times when she would hit me, she would scream at me. Anytime anything went wrong, I was the one who was blamed for it. And I had a younger brother, and he was sort of the golden child. And um, I always just sort of felt like I was unwanted. Um, still to this day, my mom doesn't hear me when I try to talk to her or tell her what needs I have. She just completely ignores what I have to say and will move on doing what she's decided that I need. So instead of like listening for me to let her know what I need or asking me what I need, it's a matter of she knows better than I do what I need. And she's going to, regardless of what I'm asking of her, <laughs> um, do what she's going to do. And Mm -hmm. even like in recovery, I've been in recovery for 12 years. I haven't had a drink or or a drug in 12 years. And my mom, seven years into my recovery, brought me a bottle
0: of
1: wine as a housewarming gift. So I have unpacked a little bit of the childhood abuse. I'm still kind of working on putting some of that into words. I think I've forgotten a lot of what's happened in my childhood.
0: What's the age difference between you and your brother?
1: Um, I'm four years older.
0: Four years older. Why do you think that your brother was treated so differently?
1: I think because he was not the female child. (laughs) And I think that my mom sort of sees herself in me. And she doesn't like Mm -hmm. herself. I don't think she likes the way that she is. She's very angry with God for not for the accident. And I don't think she's ever dealt with that. And so I think when she looks at me, she sees herself. And so because she doesn't like herself, she takes that out on me.
0: Well, that's a lot. Feeling unwanted and feeling unheard is not a fun place to be. And I'm so sorry that you've experienced that growing up in your environment, especially coming from your mother. At this point in your life, has your brother acknowledged that there's a difference?
1: No, my brother has sort of detached from the family. He doesn't really speak to any of us very often. He doesn't come to family gatherings. I'm currently not in contact with him. Okay.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: I think he's sort of just detached because he doesn't know any better way to cope with my mom. I think that if it were up to me... I would detach as well. I've kind of been mm-hmm. put in a situation because of the end of my abusive marriage, which happened you know, almost five years ago where I'm currently living on the property where my parents live. And so it's put me in a situation where I still have to be in some contact with my mom and I do care about my dad and they're still married. And so that also puts me in a situation where if i want to be able to talk to my my father then i have to still be in some contact with my mom but if it were up to me i would probably detach from my mother as mm-hmm. well so i get it to some degree
0: cuz you you described him as the golden child so i it seemed like he was receiving additional favoritism so i didn't understand why he would detach
1: Well, I think he was.
0: So it sounds like it's been traumatic for him as well.
1: Yeah, I think he was as a child. But. Okay. Now that we're adults, engaging with my mom is difficult for anybody. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She's very difficult to engage with because she just isn't healthy enough to have any sort of emotional engagement.
0: I'm so sorry that it's been so difficult overall. But coming back to you, how has your mom's, how has this relationship with your mother uh, impacted you internally over the years?
1: I think it was a big factor in why I turned to addiction. Her relationship with my dad has always been rocky. And so from the time I was a young child, I pretty much wasn't home. I had neighbors who were really kind and kind of accepted me as part of their family. And so from the time I was eight years old, I would just leave home. Most of the time, I would only come home if my parents forced me to. By the time I was 13, I was running away and using drugs and alcohol to kind of cope with my feelings. I grew up, you know, as soon as I was old enough, to start having any sort of awareness of what was going on with my mom. um, I was very angry. And I didn't really understand why I was angry. I just knew that I hated my mother. And so I would just leave. I didn't know any other way to cope with it. I learned at a very young age that my parents couldn't do anything to stop me from leaving. And so I would just leave. And that led to the road that I took down addiction to being the only way that I knew how to cope with my pain. And there was, I think, a lot of grief behind that in not having a mom that could hear me or understand me or see me for who I am. She was, you know, also narcissistic, so very incapable of that loving relationship. And it affected me really deeply in that I looked for that in other places. I looked for that love and acceptance anywhere that I could find it. And I knew I couldn't get it at home. And so it started, you know, I was accepted at my neighbor's house and that was really created a base for me to even get the recovery that I have now, I think is having that loving family to kind of grow up in that maybe wasn't my own. (laughs) And when I got into addiction, one of the things that led me to stay there was that the community that it brought, it was a place where I was loved and accepted more than I was at home. Even if it was with people that I was using and partying with.
0: I mean, that makes sense in that you were seeking community and finding that community is really important. It's just that that community was not probably supportive for you or anyone for that matter, because when we look at addiction, that's probably not in the best interest of you, right? I'm so sorry for what happened in regards to your mom, though. And has there been any, over the years, has there been any recognition in regards to her actions and what that's done for to you or your brother?
1: Uh, I don't think that there ever will be any recognition from her or from my family. It continues to be justified because of her accident. So the emotional and physical abuse that I endured as a child and continue to endure now, uh, whenever I have contact with her, The family, the entire family, you know, my dad and then all of her side of the family, her sisters, basically, they have continued to put forth that she can't help it because of her accident. And my take on that is that she hasn't tried, right? She hasn't. She's never gone to counseling. She's never done anything for any sort of personal growth. And I mean, if you don't try, of course, you're not going to (laughs) grow, you know, and I know people through recovery that. have. So because of that accident and her head injury, it's okay for her to abuse me. And she can't, she can't help it because of her head injury.
0: Well, let's unpack how this has played out in your life, because I'm assuming that you began seeking, as as we kind of talked about, seeking refuge anywhere you could find and where you found this was in a community that was not supportive for you.
1: Yes. It,
0: so how did that play out?
1: Honestly, in some ways, I would say that the community that I found in addiction was more supportive for me than my family ever was. The problem with that was I didn't, I wasn't able to grow emotionally and it stunted who I was and who I became. And Mm -hmm. I think what it also did, the way that I grew up, set me up to seek out relationships with people who are emotionally unavailable because it felt like home to me. And so I think most recently, even in sobriety, how that's played out for me. And really, it's been in this last 12 years where most of my mental health journey has happened, because though the addiction and the childhood abuse and, and neglect was a huge part of why I became who I am, or who I was.
0: <laughs> mm hmm.
1: The mental health part of it has happened since I've been sober in the last 12 years. And it's been interesting to find out that even as I have stopped, you know, using alcohol and drugs to cope with my feelings, um, I've still tended toward unhealthy relationships, you know, even in sobriety. And, you know, I, I had an experience when I was 20 years old where I... Gave my life to Christ, as they as they called it back in the day. Like you know, you give your life to Christ, and that's Mm -hmm. supposed to fix everything, right? You you become a Jesus follower, Mm -hmm. and Jesus comes in, and he saves you, and all of your problems are gone. Was the was the impression that I got at the time? And uh, unfortunately, that didn't work out for me. You know, I I managed to stop doing hard drugs but I just went deeper into my drinking and mm-hmm. what happened in sobriety was I, I wanted to go back to that whole through that whole Jesus walk. And I wanted to be closer to God because that's part of sobriety, right? Is, you know, uh, believing in a power mm-hmm. higher that, than yourself that can restore you to sanity that step too. And so When I got sober, I started going back to church, and I really got involved with listening to a lot of different pastors, and I really wanted to have a relationship that honored God. That was really important to me, and I got a sponsor. I didn't date for a couple years, and then I started dating, and I met this wonderful Christian man who had missionary parents, right? He knew the Bible backwards and forwards, and like, you know, he prayed, and he he knew how to say all the right things. Right. And I got involved in this relationship. And of course, you know, wanting to honor God, we, we waited until we got married, and we moved in together. And I didn't really know this guy, because I'd never even spent a night with him before, right. <laughs> and uh, So we moved in together. And it turned out that He was probably the cruelest man that I've ever, ever been in a relationship with in sobriety. And there was a lot of religious, you know, very early on in the marriage, it was like, it went into this piece of, I needed to submit because I'm the woman. Right. And that's what the Bible says. And
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I didn't have Mm -hmm. any say in things or any value. And it, it was pretty soul crushing for me, um, realizing that I had ended up.
0: I can only imagine. Yeah,
1: ended up in this relationship, even in sobriety, that was so unhealthy and would require me to crush who I was in order to conform to what he mm-hmm. wanted for our marriage. And I did that for four yeah. years because I had made a covenant, right and. Uh, this is what you do when you're mm-hmm. a Christian. You get married and it's forever. There is no such thing as divorce. It's not even, you're not even supposed to consider it. And I listened to a lot of of sermons that told me that I was supposed to submit. I listened to a lot of other churches. Once I got married and I was pulled out of the church where I had gotten sober, I started going to other churches with with my now ex-husband. And, you know, that's what I was hearing from the pulpit in those churches, though I had never heard it from my home church. And I had stayed in contact with a couple people from my home church where I had gotten sober and gone for a long time. And one of them was a pastor there. Another one was a close friend. And I began to tell them about some of the things that were happening in my marriage. And they were actually the first people to help me get to a point where I could call out the abuse because I couldn't call it abuse right and god this is hard to articulate <laughs> um
0: well it's it's a hard thing because this this is a very emotional thing to talk about and it's okay so take your time
1: yeah so I, I had actually had a, a woman pastor at the time who
2: it's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOSB. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 plus and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio on 1123. Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred Gambler. And
1: talk with periodically throughout my sobriety journey. She's kind of been a big part of my life, and I sat down with her one day and sort of shared some of the things that were going on in my marriage. Some of the things like you know being being taken away from friends and family and having everything i did videotaped in the house every word that i would say like i was under video surveillance at all times in my home and
0: yeah that's emotional and like that's abuse
1: yeah yeah and uh, i wasn't allowed access to the cameras and
0: under the guise
1: yeah under under the guise of security
0: of religion yeah that's abuse Right, like they're using, but like that's all under the guise of religion as well. Like, yeah, it's wrong with one hundred percent certainty, and I'm so sorry that yeah. happened. But continue on. So there was security. There
1: was there was that
0: you didn't have access.
1: There was, um, I wasn't allowed to touch his phone, and he, I did catch him a couple times and some, some text messaging things. And I had shared this with my pastor and she had, had called it out as abuse and some other stories that, you know, it's really hard for me to articulate and remember all of the little things. And some of them I've written down and that kind of helped me sort things Mm -hmm. out. But she, she said to me, she said, Nicolette, that that's abuse and, and nobody should treat Mm -hmm. you that way. And it's okay for you to leave this relationship. You don't need to stay in this. And right. uh, I didn't leave right then. But hearing that from a pastor, I think I didn't realize at the time how rare that is. How rare it is to go to your pastor and tell them about the abuse that you've been through in your marriage and have them support you in walking away from it doesn't happen in a lot of churches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh,
0: no, it doesn't.
1: No, it doesn't. And, you know, now that I have been out for, for, uh, four and a half years, uh, since I left my abusive marriage, I've been in a lot of support groups and there are so many people that have stories of going to pastors and being told to stay in their abusive marriage. And, told that they need to submit or they need to pray more. And I heard those things from all the books that I read, right? And I heard those things in many of the sermons that I listened to in other churches, right? And uh, one of the books that my in-laws gave me when I first got married was got married was Love and Respect by Emerson Egricks. And <laughs> that book now is like one of the ones that I would burn if I ever got my hands on it again. <laughs> you know? And it's obviously in a lot of the circles that I'm in now on Facebook with survivors and, you know, people who are advocates against abusive relationships. Uh, That's one of the books that is the most Mm -hmm. hated. (laughs) And it's funny how much that gets entrenched in Christian circles, because after I left, my marriage. I lived in transitional housing for a while. I lost everything when I left. I took my children and my van and whatever I could carry. And I just left with nothing. And my husband kept the house. He ruined me financially, which, you know, whatever. I got my kids. And that's the most important piece for me. Um, But I went and lived in transitional Mm -hmm. living. And one of Mm -hmm. the things that they were using in some of their curriculum with the women there is they were teaching us out of love and respect how we should raise our boys. And both myself and another woman who had been through okay. a Christian abusive relationship went, uh, we don't need to respect our little boys more than we need to respect our little girls. Like, both girls and boys need respect. And it was really traumatic for us to have that whole piece of only men need respect brought into even the transitional housing for women with children where people were trying to recover from abusive relationships they were actually bringing this curriculum into this christian housing and we both walked out of the session that we were required to be in and said we're there's no way you know and so it's interesting to me how
0: and that shouldn't that should never be part of transitional living curriculum, ever. Like, it should never be religious in nature, unless it's a religious organization.
1: It is a religious organization.
0: Well, then that's where they get to call their own shots.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so if, they, if they are a religious organization, then they get to call their own shots. And so, what did you do in regards to learning that information?
1: Uh, I tried to sit down and talk to the leadership there about how that affected me as a survivor. And I don't think Mm -hmm. I was really heard. (laughs) And that was really hard for me. I mean, they didn't force me to do the class because at the time, you know, you in this, in this home, this transitional living home, you were required to do all of the classes that they offered You had to do, there was Genesis process, which was great. I love Genesis process. It actually probably was one of the most helpful recovery things I've ever done as far as dealing with some of my childhood pain and anger. Mm -hmm. But some of the other, and the parenting classes were good. We did whole brain child and that was really helpful for raising the kids. Okay. But just that one piece Mm -hmm. of having that Emerson Egricks book brought in was really really difficult for me because that was was,
0: triggering i imagine
1: yeah it was the book that probably was one of the most harmful Mm -hmm. for me early on in my marriage
0: i can understand why yeah yeah but it sounds like you've been able to move forward
1: i have been able to move forward i've spent really the last five years doing a lot of different types of work i went through genesis process and i think Having going through that with a counselor who did some really great like meditation type exercises with me to help me get through some of that was great. I've also had a couple of trauma informed counselors in the last four years since I left, and mm-hmm. that was really helpful for me to be able to talk some of this through with somebody who is trauma informed. I was very hesitant. To go through counseling once I got out of the marriage because I had attended counseling with my ex-husband to try to fix the marriage, which you know many counselors who are trauma informed know that when you're in abusive in an abusive marriage, counseling isn't usually going to help. And uh, my ex-husband was, I believe, a narcissist, and I know a lot of people say that. I've done a lot of reading about it and. I'm not a mental health professional, so I'm not in any place to diagnose that. But I, I truly believe that that's one of the things that he really suffered from was narcissism. And Mm -hmm. when we went to counseling together, he was able to manipulate two of the counselors that we went to, into believing that I was the problem. And so I was really hesitant to go to counseling after the marriage because I was really afraid of what they would say to me. And with all of the gaslighting that I had been through, I had a really hard time separating what was my part in the relationship and what was not. And especially in recovery, you know, when you do a fourth step inventory, one of the things that they tell you is you look at your part. You don't look at anybody else's part. You look at only your part because you can only change you. And so I was doing this thing for a very long time and where it was maybe even easier to manipulate me into looking at what's my part in this? Like, how can I fix it by looking at my part and being gaslighted, being told that, you know, everything I was saying and doing, uh, he would purposely make me angry And like, then he would tell me, well, look at you, you're angry. What's wrong with you? Like, you know, not because you just said that, you know, if I leave you, you're going to take my children away. That's not what the problem was. The problem was me because I got angry when he said that. Right. And so look at me. And so it would it was very scary to go to a mental health professional because I didn't know if somehow it was all my fault.
0: Well, that's just a really scary place to be. And let's talk about how the experience was. I just heard you say it, it was a very freeing. So keep going.
1: It was freeing because once I got into counseling with someone who was very trauma informed and highly recommended by the the pastor who had sort of helped me come out of abuse and also started me on my deconstruction journey. I was able to tell my story and for the first time, have it validated by somebody that it wasn't my fault and that I didn't really deserve to be treated that way and begin to pick through all of the pieces of my stories and understand that my anger responses were natural for somebody who was put into that position. like you you can't be put into a position mm-hmm. where somebody is purposely manipulating your emotions and not respond. and right. I think my biggest part was not walking away sooner, but I didn't really know any better. and right it's been a really hard and- journey.
0: The, the important part is is that you did take action and you did take steps and you did get out of that environment and recognizing that, hey, uh, I took these steps and this is how I did that. And then using that as a way to be an encouragement to others is, is really the, the key here uh, rather than beating yourself up over I could have done things better.
1: Yes, yes, I agree, and that's been something that I'm learning how to do. I'm still sort of learning how to share my story and how to articulate it. I think it's been hard for me to find the time to write everything down as a single parent of a small child. <laughs> I haven't had as much time as I would like, and that's where COVID was really great for me, as I got to take a year and a half off of work and be able to get an Mm -hmm. employment and take the time to do some healing work and that that was amazing for me really it gave me the opportunity to do some of that healing work but that's something that i really would like to do is learn to articulate my story well enough to maybe share it a little better and maybe that's why i wanted to do this podcast (laughs) is that
0: well you're doing a great job notice i haven't asked many questions because you're doing such a great job. I don't even have to ask questions. You're just sharing and you're going and you're doing brilliantly so well. I don't even have to intervene. Yeah. So keep going.
1: Oh, I was saying that one of the reasons why I've wanted to do the podcast is that I would like to be able to articulate the story. I know that there are a lot of other women out there who have gone through um, what I went through as far as, you know, growing up in evangelicalism being taught that women should submit to their husbands and instead of this mutual submission piece that I really truly believe that the Bible really talks more about mutual submission. And if you look at it in context and the whole like inerrancy of the Bible and how that's damaged my life, I know that I'm not alone in that. And I want to learn to mm-hmm. articulate my story in a way that can maybe help other women out of that. And it's just something that I would really like to be able to do to help other women.
0: Well, let's talk about, can we unpack how you have helped other women? Because in reading your story, you have been involved in this action of taking steps towards being an influence, a positive influence towards other people. And this is something that I'm noticing across the board is that people who've experienced something that's been traumatic, they have turned this around to be an influence to others. So, and I think that you're taking steps in that direction. Unpack that a little bit more.
1: Well, one of the things that I do that, I think helps others is facilitating a recovery group at my church. It's called project One Hundred and
0: Eighty, and it's not, it's not, (laughs) I would say so.
1: It's not just recovery from drugs and alcohol, but it's a multi recovery aspect group where there's, you know, people who struggle with codependency. There's people who Mm -hmm. struggle with addiction. There's people who struggle with grief, uh, food issues, anger, you know, you name it. Uh, There's people that struggle with it in our, in our group. And that has been something that I've been passionate about doing for a long time. It started out as a celebrate recovery group. And that's where I actually got sober was in celebrate recovery. And then, mm, well, I think probably like seven years ago, we decided that celebrate recovery was a little bit too, too legalistic for our church. (laughs) in the way that they say that you need to be a Christ follower in order to have the 12 steps work for you. And we wanted to go more towards the AA side of that, where you don't necessarily need to be a Christ follower to Mm -hmm. get recovery. And at the same time, wanted to be able to use some, other curriculum besides just AA and pull in some Christian recovery resources, um, like Richard Rohr has some really great recovery stuff. And so we wanted to be able to, to put that in there. And so we kind of made up our own recovery ministry. And through that, I've been able to share my story. I've been able to help other women go through the 12 steps. I've facilitated a couple of 12-step groups. And I currently have a sponsee who we do recovery stuff together once a week. And that's amazing. And so I that's have huge.
0: So you're a sponsor. That's huge. Yes.
1: And, and I'm really involved in AA and, and NA as well. And I think that has sort of taught me. It's taught me a lot to be an AA and NA. It's taught me that God doesn't really have limits that people who may use a different name for their mm-hmm. higher power than I do are still getting help from the same God and still having the same miracles happen in their lives. And there isn't, God doesn't need you to call them a certain name or say a certain set of words for him to work mm-hmm. in, in the lives of people. And I think sometimes I think the way that AA, That's powerful. The way that AA does does community is sometimes better for me than the way that church does community. And though my church is really wonderful in the way that they do community, I realize that that Mm -hmm. doesn't happen at every church. I've been to a lot of different churches over the years and really blessed to be in one that has sort of a recovery base in, in the staff there. And that trickles Mm -hmm. down to the way that we do community in our church and I feel really blessed to have that because I think the way that AA and NA does community is beautiful.
0: With that, I want to thank you so much for coming on to mental health uncovered. Is there anything else that you think that is super important that we didn't cover that you like mentioned in regards to your story?
1: Uh, No, I don't think so.
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on Um, If people want to find you, where where can they go to get a hold of you?
1: I don't have a website or anything. I'm on Facebook. (laughs) That's pretty much the only place that people can get a hold of me right now.
0: Okay. All right. We want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. And I hope that you have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember that Mental Health Uncovered does not provide any type of therapeutic, clinical, psychiatric, or medical advice and is intended for entertainment purposes only. If you need such care, I encourage you to find such a professional in your community. You can locate and access your local crisis line by calling 988. Thanks again for listening.